My name is Leonie Hinkson. Welcome to Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. My special guest this week is Christopher Bonastia, the author of a new book about the history of our public schools entitled The Battle Nearer to Home, The Persistence of School Segregation in New York City. But first, some disappointing news. Finally, after months of delay, the appellate court came out with their decision in the school budget cuts lawsuit. As you may remember, four teachers and parents sued the city in July, pointing out that the city council vote on the city budget that included huge cuts to schools had preceded the vote on the education budget by the Panel for Educational Policy, which violated the order set out by state law and deprived elected officials from gaining feedback from parents and teachers during the PEP hearing about the devastating impact these cuts would have had on their schools. As in 11 out of the last 13 years, the chancellor issued an emergency declaration intended to short-circuit the process. The plaintiffs won their case at the lower court level when Judge Lyle Frank ordered last year's budget be restored until the city council had another chance to vote. Many council members had said they regretted their vote and indeed wanted that opportunity. The city promptly appealed Judge Frank's decision, though, saying it would lead to too much disruption to change school budgets at that point, ignoring the greater disruption to schools caused by these cuts, including class size increases and loss of valued counselors, art and music programs. Indeed, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, class sizes have substantially risen this year in all grades but high schools, a direct result of the cuts, and are moving in the opposite direction of the new state law, which requires class sizes to be lowered. The budget cuts lawsuit sat in the appellate court for several months until last week they disputed nearly all the claims made by the DOE. They said the chancellor's practice of repeatedly issuing emergency declarations each year was invalid and that the DOE had simply been avoiding its statutory obligations. They also agreed that holding the PP hearings and vote on the education budget after the council vote violated the state law and the intentions of the legislature, who had wanted to ensure that comments from community members could be heard and voted on before the council decided whether to approve the budget. In addition, they rejected the city's claims that the court had no role to play in this dispute and that the petitioners lacked legal standing. Sadly, however, the appellate court also decided that requiring a revote of the council now would have a broad unsettling effect on the DOE's operations and would be, quote, detrimental to students and teachers alike. Instead, they would merely require that the city and the DOE would have to adhere to the legal process going forward. This, of course, ignored the far greater unsettling effect these courts have already had on students and teachers, and who, as Laura Barbieri, the attorney for the plaintiffs, pointed out, quote, would have benefited tremendously if the city council would have revoted. It was simply the DOE, she said, that may have been disrupted, a more bureaucratic disruption. And as parent leader Naquan McLean pointed out, Quote, we are in the middle of a mid-year budget modification process for the entire city. Why can we not fix the education budget as part of the existing mid-year process? In fact, as part of this process, the DOE recently announced that schools would not have to give back funding mid-year if their enrollment was even lower than projected and would be allowed to keep their initial budget allocations, which the DOE said totals $200 million though this is only part of the cuts that were made and won't allow them to bring back teachers or restore programs already dropped. In the resources section of the podcast and the WBAI website, I'll put a link to our summary showing how these cuts have led to class size increases this fall, as well as news articles about the disappointing appellate court decision and the DOE announcement that they would not force school to make additional cuts to their budgets mid-year. Now let's turn to another issue, one that is particularly relevant to the current state of our public schools here in New York City. My guest today is Christopher Bonastia, a professor at Lehman College and the author of a new book entitled The Battle Nearer to Home, The Persistence of School Segregation in New York City. Thank you for being with us today, Christopher, and thank you for this book, which is really fascinating and a must read for anyone interested in the issue of school segregation or really for anyone interested in the history of New York City public schools. First, can you explain why the terms desegregation and integration are not synonymous but mean different things and which one you focused on in the book? Sure. Um, I think when we talk about desegregation, we're basically talking about mixing bodies to end numerical isolation. 
this often happens as a result of a court order, not always, but often. Um, and integration suggests not just physical proximity, but equal treatment and inclusiveness of different identities. So everyone feels part of a school community. So this could include not just numerically integrated student bodies, but teachers and staff that reflect the diversity of the students, attention to inclusive curriculums that don't shy away from the ugly parts of US history and so on. Um, you know, with respect to that last comment, I mean, I feel like if you ignore the ugly parts of US history, you have no ways of understanding contemporary inequality and you're not gonna really form a sort of school community. You write that the debate over integration in New York City schools began in earnest following the famous Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision was released in May of 1954, and how that decision was based in part on the work of Kenneth Clark, who was an eminent psychologist professor at CUNY who theorized that segregated schools had a profoundly negative impact on the self-esteem of black children. In fact, in 1954, the New York City Board of Education itself wrote that the case, quote, reminds us that the modern psychological knowledge indicates clearly that segregated racial homogenous schools damage the personality of minority children, their motivation and ability to learn. White children are also damaged. Can you explain this idea? I mean, I guess I would first say, you know, some of these ideas have not aged all that well um, as far as personality damage um, for students of color if they are in all black and brown schools. I think most folks would not not go that far. But to go back to that period of time, um, throughout his decades in the public arena, Clark viewed segregation through a bunch of different lenses. Around the time of Brown v. Board, he did believe that black children in segregated schools would be more likely to accept their subordinate status and feel humiliation because of it. And he was sort of a little more fuzzy on white students, but he said white students in segregated schools would be likely to develop a sort of moral cynicism and disrespect for authority after realizing the hypocrisy in the ideals of justice, fairness, and brotherhood that they had heard from their teachers, parents, and so on. And, and then by the mid-60s, though still kind of fervently pro-integration, Clark argued that demanding exemplary education in low-income segregated schools did not constitute an acceptance of segregation. And he said, we need to save as many Black children as we can now. But one of his persistent beliefs throughout the decades was that teachers had to believe deeply that their students were capable of learning and achieving. Um, and many teachers in so-called ghetto schools simply did not believe that. So after the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education decision came out, the New York City Board of Education commissioned the Public Education Association to study the issue and then subsequently a commission on integration to come up with recommendations to address the problem. What came out of these studies in terms of actual proposals and policies? So the, the main two um, proposals that were discussed and sort of generated the, the most controversy was one to create a central zoning unit that would maximize uh, integration. And the uh, second was mandatory teacher rotation. So with respect to the central zoning unit, the recommendation was that this would be created and integration would be front and center. What the board did was saying, well, integration will be one of nine considerations that the zoning unit takes into account. So that recommendation, there was not a lot of life to it. Right. So was, it, was that to rezone districts to make sure that within those either school attendance zones or the larger district zones, there was a, a, a more um, representative and more integrated selection of students or proportion of students? Yeah, I think it was mostly school zones, but also uh, the siting of schools. Right. So in the 50s and 60s, a lot of new schools were being built. 
And, you know, there was a lot of debate uh, about whether to build those schools where the population was growing fastest, which was in low-income black and brown neighborhoods, or what they called then fringe neighborhoods, meaning right on the border between white and black neighborhoods. And the teacher rotation thing is interesting. Can you explain what it meant and why? Basically, most of the uh, teacher organizations of which there were a, a number at the time, right? The uh, UFT had not really consolidated power quite quite yet. Um, they, they did not want mandatory teacher rotation at all. And of course, what that is, or the problem that was trying to get at was that um, you had the most experienced teachers and the ones considered the the best, mostly in predominantly white middle-class schools. And then in the low-income, mostly black and Puerto Rican schools, you were more likely to have inexperienced teachers, more likely to have substitutes, more likely to have teachers who had, quote-unquote, washed out of more sought-after schools. And so the idea was, you know, we're going to take the sort of best teachers and not just have them teach in these schools that in some way they might be least needed, but uh, put them in the schools that they would be of the the most benefit. Um, But teachers groups were not going for that at all. (laughs) I mean, basically. It didn't happen. Right, right. So a few years ago, I was at a town hall meeting when then Chancellor Perina, um proposed that instead of integration, white kids at certain white majority schools should be assigned pen pals with students in schools uh, that were made up primarily of, of students of color. And she was appropriately lambasted for that when the articles came out in the media. But I was amazed to find that this actually happened to some degree in the 1950s where students were assigned pen pals from paired schools, um, one primarily black, another primarily white. And there was even a promotional film made about some of these efforts. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, this was uh, 1954. And the Board of Ed uh, created a film called Let Us Break Bread Together, which you can find on YouTube. And you know, you could probably predict the arc of the film where at first families who were involved in this sort of school visitation and pen pal thing would say, you know, I don't know what the point of this is. And I'm not sure it's such a good idea to mingle these children together. And then at the end, a a white woman comes back on and said, at first I was skeptical, and and then I'll quote here, but it has brought our family closer to the grandeur of God through learning to know the heights to which all men can rise, whatever their nationality, color, or creed, so long as they have sympathetic encouragement to achieve the best that is in them, end quote. And, you know, what I think is interesting is the the appeal of such a program to school uh, officials, right? It involves little cost and no sacrifice. It was politically uncontentious and it helped people feel they were doing their part as open-minded cosmopolitan New Yorkers. So your book goes into some detail, not only about how schools with primarily students of color had objectively worse schools, and we've talked about this a little bit in, ter- in terms of teacher qualifications, but also they tended to be more overcrowded. Uh, sometimes they were on double shifts so that children had fewer instructional hours. But you also talk about how in many cases the Board of Education appeared to actively maintain segregation in the way they cited and zoned schools. Can you give some examples of this? I spend a fair bit of time in the the book talking about students um, who lived in the Tilden houses in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And it's kind of a long, involved story, but 
they spent nearly two months out of school as the Board of Ed tried to de decide which schools to place them in. I mean, it went, there were four or five different schools. And one of the issues was, do we place them in nearby integrated schools that then may, may tip? Or do, do we send them to what at the time, you know, was known as a white stronghold of Canarsie, where they may face hostility? And so the, the, the board and the superintendent went back and forth and said, we're going to send them here. No, I think we're going to send them here. And there were and protests. I mean, there was white backlash at a lot of the schools when they would say, oh, we'll put them here. Then the white parents protested. And then they said, no, we'll put them here. And then there were other protests. And it, it seemed to go back and forth. And at one point, um, some of the parents at one of the white schools said, we're going to create a private school. And but use the building, the public school building to set up their private school. Really, it was, it was a very, very sort of um, intense battles on the ground. Yes, indeed. Um, and, you know, in, in 1964, I guess just on a re related note, um, the first private school for segregation was created in, in Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, and, you know, so this is one of the things I'm trying to bring out in this, this book, right? I mean, my last book was on Prince Edward County, Virginia. Um, and I wanted to look at New, New York City, where I live, and um, just the resistance to integration um, and the, the forms that it took here. This is Lainey Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. I'm talking to Christopher Bonastia, who's written a terrific new book on the history of des desegregation efforts in New York schools called The Battle Nearer to Home. So there was accumulating an understandable frustration uh, in the black community about the lack of action that built for about 10 years until at 1964, it really reached, it seems like a boiling point. And there were immense boycotts that were organized by the NAACP, other civil rights organizations, and I think the black churches as well, pushing the Board of Education to put together a real desegregation plan that would include the, the busing, I'll use the word forced busing, of both black and white students to really make a dent in terms of desegregation. And there were also big boycotts of white uh, students organized by white parents in response. It's kind of astonishing for us now to read the numbers of students and families that were involved in these boycotts, especially for those of us who've worked a long time um, organizing New York City public school parents, where it's often very difficult to get that kind of mass um, demonstrations or reactions. Can you explain how many students actually stayed home um, during these boycotts and how they were so effectively organized? Yeah, um, there were nearly half a million students who stayed home that day. You know, a lot of, I think, the kind of word of mouth was through through churches. Um, there was a, a citywide Committee for Integrated Schools that in, in included some local uh, core and, and AACP chapters um, that include the Harlem Parents Committee and, you know, a number of, of church leaders. Um, I mean, it's it's really incredible to think now where this was all, you know, face to face. Right. I mean, even, you know, before the folks, Internet. Yeah. And, you know, some folks did didn't have phones, right? It wasn't that, well, we could just call all of them. So it was really, I think, largely through through churches. And then about five weeks after this student boycott for integration, um, you had 15,000 white protesters in front of City Hall, basically protesting any integration plans, um, you know, in sort of classic fashion. They would say, we are for integration, but any method you propose to actually achieve it, we do not support. And... Um, one or the sort of main group 
behind that white protest was parents and taxpayers that had formed in Jackson Heights in September of 1963 when word of a, a school pairing plan had leaked out. Um, and I can talk about that if, if you'd like. Um, so, and there was an, also, uh, there were two huge black, uh, boycotts and one fairly large white boycott as well. Um, that, that, um, among them where hundreds of thousands of kids were kept home from school. And I think part of the threat involved in that is that they, the schools would lose funding from the state, um, right. based upon low attendance. And, um, it was really quite, quite dramatic. Um, and this led to something that you just mentioned called the school pairing experiment in September 1964, which was based upon something called the Princeton Plan, which was supposed to be more effective than some of the practices that had previously been used in the schools. Can you explain what that was all about? Yeah, sure. So the idea behind school pairing, which had been done in Princeton, New New Jersey, was you would take two nearby schools one mostly white, one mostly black. And instead of having each of those schools be K through six, you would have one school be K through three and all the students from from both schools would go there. And then the second school being four grades four through six. And so you you would have a a more integrated student body just by by pairing those schools. This was the first time that there was in New New York City um, white students being compelled to to switch schools. There were only I think four or five uh, sets of schools that were were paired, and the idea was that was going to be expanded, which didn't really happen. the The sort of Princeton part of it is interesting because. You know, folks who did not uh, support the pairing plan in New New York City said it's one thing to do that in in Princeton. You have a black population that has been been around 10 percent for many years. It's not going to change. It can work there. But in a place like New York City, which is much bigger and we have constantly changing demographics in the school system, it's not going to work. And so that experiment uh, didn't last for long, I assume, and didn't certainly didn't expand. One of the things that had been um, done, I think even before the protests, was to allow black students at overcrowded schools to transfer on their own volition to less crowded, primarily white schools. And sometimes busing would be provided and sometimes it would not be provided. Is that right? But when they actually tried to do that in large numbers in an organized systematic way, um, that's when you seem to get um, parent resistance and parent protests in the white schools. There were some recommendations that I'd never heard of before um, reading this book that I find fascinating that seemed kind of pie in the sky and unrealistic, um, but they're really interesting to read about. And I hope you could talk a little bit about them. Um, one of them was plans for massive new educational parks to be built in places where I guess there was like empty land um, that would feature integrated schools with I don't know whether these were in actual parks or just undeveloped land. And then also uh, an amazing idea, which I'd love to see a picture of, to create a six-mile futuristic city on stilts above the Brooklyn Expressway. And apparently the people who proposed this said this could be built mostly with federal funds. Can you explain where these plans um, came out of and, and, and you know whether you thought they ever had a chance of happening? Sure. Um, the idea of educational parks was that you could both have increased in integration and greater school quality through economies of scale. 
So if you had a high school with 10,000 or 15,000 students, you could build these great facilities, you could have social workers, you could have psychologists, you could have a huge array of classes and activities. And so this idea of building educational parks was seen in some quarters as the sort of last hope for integration. So Dr. King in one of his his books wrote that very thing that this this is the sort of future of schooling and this is a way we can get integration. In New York City he was talking about or around the country? No, no, uh nationwide. I mean there there were I think at least 20 towns and cities that had were in various stages of of planning in new new york city the kind of first one bill was in co-op city and uh truman high school i wish i could have delved into that more um because it's it, it is a really interesting story um and then to sort of top that um, there was this this idea that seemed to be gaining steam that in Brooklyn would be built a linear city, which would um, be built kind of above this cross Brooklyn expressway. And there would be shops and schools. And I think a I'm not sure if it was a, a monorail or just a normal train, but it was, you know, this this big vision and the idea was 90% of the funds could could come from the federal government but that was a, another one of the, those plans that didn't come to fruition um my my favorite that didn't see the light of day at all was i think uh someone was writing in in harpers i think it was harpers with this idea, we could have all new New York City students um, be in something like 20 10-story buildings that could be placed on uh, Ellis Island and um, and in Staten Island, right by the the docks, and in instead of busing. Uh, children would be transported in high-speed boats to to their their schools, um, and I thought having 500 kids on a high-speed boat each day—I don't know—maybe that might not have been the 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 best idea. Well, a few years ago, I was pushing very hard, uh, without success, to have more schools sited on Governor's Island, which has mm-hmm. numerous huge empty buildings that were not being used for anything. Now they have an alternative proposal to create a a university climate center on the island to use some of those buildings, though not all of them still. And there is one built, one school on there now, the Harbor School. And I actually testified on this, wrote an op-ed for the Daily News. Um, I think it would be a great place to put more high schools because there is a ferry from lower Manhattan and already a ferry from Brooklyn that takes six minutes to get there. So I don't think it's completely unrealistic to do that still in some of the remaining empty buildings on Governor's Island. Um, Because for many years they were claiming there was no space to build new high schools and that if there was space, uh, uh, communities would, uh, especially in Queens, where we have some of the most overcrowded high schools, communities uh, protested and didn't want high schools there. Um, Even apart from the racial issue, they just didn't want high school kids around them at all. So um, that's interesting about um, Ellis Island. Put those kids back to where they came over, the immigrants came over in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, You write about how the push for community control um, was in part a reaction to the failures of the city and the Board of Ed to actually take real action and and show real progress in desegregation. And that that um, community control experiment was actually cited not just in, in Brooklyn, um, the one that we hear about all the time, but also there was one in East Harlem and one in the two bridge sections of the Lower East Side. Um, Ocean Hill Brownsville, of course, was the one in Brooklyn. They, these experiments seem to last only a few years, and of course they were met by many protests, including from the UFT um, and Ocean Hill Brownsville, when they tried to transfer some 
some of the teachers who they didn't think were capable of uh, or effective in teaching black children. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit, because, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about those experiments, but a little bit about um, how they, um, the ones, especially in the other parts of the city that we haven't heard so much about and why they ended so abruptly. So I think as you you mentioned, I mean, that the, the sort of push for community control came from a frustration with kind of failed integration plans and also this kind of persistent impression that many of our children's teachers don't believe our children can learn. And so if we are going to change the, the schools, we need to change at least some of the teachers. IS-201, which was the the project in Harlem is is interesting in that it was a a new school that was pitched as a model of integration. And so the Board of Ed tried to draw interest from white students in Queens and the Bronx to attend voluntarily, saying this is air conditioned. We have all of these great courses. They they got basically zero interest. The district superintendent insisted that the no, the school will actually be integrated because it, it'll be half black and half Puerto Rican. Um, the parents said that's not really what we we meant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the 201 complex in Harlem had similar demographics to Ocean Hill Brownsville. They had been demanding quality integrated education or total community control. And I think that really points to, you know, I mean, probably most Black and Puerto Rican parents were saying, just give us something that works. You know, the the Two Bridges project was sort of interesting. The largest numbers of students were white and Chinese, um, and there were some some black and Puerto Rican students as well. And this was this was an attempt by the Ford Foundation, who who funded these three experimental districts, to say this model will work not just in low income black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods, but it can work in these sort of working class, multiracial, multi ethnic places. The problem was Two Bridges was never really that interested in doing this. So that that didn't really get very far. Um, I think many folks felt that it was sort of imposed from the outside. So one thing that I thought found, found very interesting about your discussion of community control experiments that these schools made an effort to, of course, hire more black teachers and black administrators that were very rare in the system otherwise. Um, and still are not, you know, at where they should be, but the, the, the numbers of black teachers and especially black administrators were tiny, like 4% or something. But we're also ahead of their time in instituting what we now call a more culturally responsive curriculum, um, including black history in, in the one in East Harlem, um, um, teaching Puerto Rican history and the history of colonialism, and also offering the first real bilingual programs in schools, which I thought was really, really interesting. And and it sort of spread from there some of these ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. In um, Ocean Hill Brownsville schools, um, Black and Puerto Rican students took some classes in Spanish only or with Spanish and English combined. Um, students were also given lessons in Swahili. Um, and I should mention, I mean, one of the things that I think is not understood about Ocean Hill Brownsville is that the the district was around 20% Puerto Rican at the the time and students learned of the cultural links between african cultural expressions and puerto rican cultural expressions which i think is really striking and kind of great because I think still the way sort of ethnic history is is taught is, okay, we're going to cover this group this week or this month, and then this group this month, and the and how the, the, the cultures and experiences are 
interconnected and intertwined uh, many times is sort of glossed over. And as you mentioned, you know, the um, about 30% of the replacement teaching staff was black, meaning when the uh, UFT teachers were on strike, about 30% of the teachers hired were black, which was much higher than at most of New York City schools. But I think also calls in into questions these accusations that you know the the, the folks in o- Ocean Hill Brown Brownsville were anti-white. Um, they really wanted teachers who believed in their kids, and there were white teachers who believed in the project as well in those schools, right. and and very sure. much defended what was going on there as as important in terms of improving those schools. Uh, this is Lainey Hameson. I'll talk out of school on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. I'm talking to Christopher Bonastia about his new book, The Battle Nearer to Home on the History of Desegregation Efforts in New York City Schools. Meanwhile, I mean, the threat that um, sort of delayed real progress was that this would, any real efforts to desegregated schools would cause white parents to flee the city or put their kids in private schools and that um, that would undermine the tax base of the city and undermine any real chances of improvement in the long run. But meanwhile, even without really aggressive efforts to desegregate it or desegregating schools, this was happening anyway. And the percent of black and Puerto Rican children continued to increase. The white population continued to decline. Um, the public schools moved from majority white in 1957 to minority white population without, as I said, any real efforts to desegregate schools. As you put it, quote, the mathematical challenges of achieving stable integration multiplied. Then we get to the 1970s, the economic crisis hit, the cost layoffs of thousands of teachers, class sizes went up, um, many valuable art, music, sports were were lost, decades passed, and there was very little discussion of even the issue of segregation in our schools. Um, then came the Bloomberg years, and um, you pass over those years very quickly in the book, and I kind of understand why, but because I'm, you know, lived through that period and saw that there were lots of battles that weren't maybe directly focused on on segregation, had an impact on segregation. Some would say with the expansion of mayoral control, uh, Mayor Bloomberg had more power than previous mayors to really address the issue. But instead, he and Chancellor Klein focused on um, a free market system of parent choice, quote unquote choice, that would include instituting more charter schools, expanding the number of specialized high schools that depended on admissions based on one high stakes test that had very segregating effects, expanded the number of selective high schools overall, and also um, for the first time began admissions to gifted programs based on high stakes tests, all of which, which had the effect, I believe, of further segregating our schools. And I wonder why you sort of gloss over that period so quickly. Um, first, you can blame my press and the word count they uh, <laughs> held, held me to. <laughs> um, and I mean, I will say as well that writing this book about New, New York City schools was such a challenge um, because, you know, any year or e- even month I looked at, I was like, should I? talk about that and when when folks who are really sort of um into what is going on in in schools now when they ask me about the book they're always asking me well do you cover district 13 or (laughs) like i i I didn't have room um but all that to say um I do think that, you know, the sort of um, Bloomberg years, one, were an opportunity that that was sort of missed because there was um, mayoral control. And, you know, Bloomberg would have had better odds of selling white parents on this is going to be fine. Don't worry. Um but you, you know, you can certainly see the appeal of saying, 
you are all going to have choice. You are going to pick the, the, the school that is best for your child. Um, it seems like a no, no lose proposition, but of course that's not how, how it works out on the, the ground. Um, and I think, I mean, it seems like we're sort of seeing, you know, drifting back in that direction, uh, with the current, uh, administration, right? It's, it's, it's not about, um, you know, giving, uh, communities more or greater voice, but more about, well, we're going to give you these different choices. We're going to have these new, new schools that, that serve your children. Um, so, so that's, I mean, basically, yeah, what I, would... I mean, I'm sure there are infinite things you could have gone into in more detail. And this is just a personal <laughs> right, I have because I lived through those years and, and we fought over a lot of these issues. I mean, they expanded the number of specialized high schools. They, they made the gifted programs more segregated. Um, but let's move on. Um, the issue of segregation finally came back into the public eye in New York City, um, in the, in the mid 2010s. Um, and what, what sparked that attention of the public? Do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, part of it was, um, a 2012 New York Times report on, uh, segregation in city schools. And then a 2014 report by the, uh, Civil Rights Project at UCLA, which also showed a very high, um, level of se- segregation in schools in New, New York City and state. Um, and that I think started to, to get some students interested and saying, you know, what's going on here? We're, we're told we are the most progressive multicultural city. And then we find out, you know, our schools are pretty near the most segregated in the, the nation. Um, so I think you know, a group of students became in, interested and, you know, some, some, some parents too. Um, there was, I mean, I talk, talk about PS 133 in, in Park Slope where there was a, a, a school building with two different schools and one school was, um, predominantly black, mostly black, and one was mostly white. And because of how stark that was, these students going in separate doors, um, you know, some parents start to say, we really have to address this, this issue. Um, but, but I, I think, um, I think this planning for the school changed. So it was actually built, I think, on the border of District 13 and District 15. District right. 15 schools were very overcrowded, District 13 less so. And so the original plan was to share this building with two different schools in it. And then people realized how outrageous the idea would be that the mostly black kids in District 13 would be going to one school and the mostly white or the whiter kids in the 15 would go in the same, in a different door in the same building. Um, right. that also happened under Bloomberg when he created a lot of small schools that would be co-located in the same building and some would be predominantly white and some would be predominantly black and Hispanic. And I think that that in some sense sharpened the sort of outrage of students, um, who sometimes, you know, shared this one facility that there was something wrong with this system. Um, and we had uh, Bill de Blasio, um, who was elected on a platform of trying to um, create more equity across classes, across races. He himself um, married to a, a, a black woman with biracial children. And so I think there was the hope that he would do something to address this issue. And finally, after a lot of pressure um, in his second term, he did create something called the School Diversity Advisory Group. Is that right, SDAG? Yes. Mm-hmm. Which came, worked very hard, had a lot of parents and activists on that 
um, on that group and came up with two separate reports. Um, and we've had people from SDAG on the show, especially, um, Chino Tanakawa, who was one of the leaders, um, pushing for more specific, um, efforts for integration. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about their proposals and, and, and how many of them were actually accepted in the end? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think the sort of the, the second SDAG report in August of 2019, um, got a lot of attention because the group, uh, re- recommended that gifted and talented programs be dismantled, that all middle schools be unscreened and, and some high schools as well. Unscreened um, as to tests. And we just want to explain test scores tend to have a segregated effect. And I think they wanted them unscreened as to grades and to test scores. Is that right? Yes, I, I, I believe so. Um, and de Blasio and uh, Chancellor Carranza uh, accepted most of the SDAG recommendations, though they softened some. So SDAG said, you know, you you should require districts with uh, sufficient diversity to develop diversity and integration plans. And they, they, they changed that to, well, we're going to encourage them. Um, after the, the second SDAG report came out, the, the mayor said, okay, now I'm going to take some time for deep stakeholder engagement. Um, and, and then we will act, uh, in his February 2020 state of the city address, he did not mention, um, SDAG at all. And, it's it was so striking to to me how these these the same sort of playbook played out as in many past years where the board of ed or the mayor would say we are going to study this issue of in uh se- segregation and inequality we're going to appoint a blue ribbon panel then the report finally comes out um the mayor says, yeah, we're going to do some of this in a kind of diluted way, but then very little of it is actually put in into place. And then you wait a few years and the cycle goes on again. Okay, we're going to, I mean, I, I think the folks on SDAG worked really hard and there are clearly some really, really smart folks on there. You know, I, 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 I don't think the the problem was they didn't come up with well thought out uh, recommendations. One of the things that I found most annoying about de Blasio was that he sat on the the gifted recommendation, which I think would have been the simplest to implement. Um, And New York City is one of the very few places in, in the country that has these gifted programs based on test results as, um, you know, at age four. Uh, he right. sat on that one until like a couple of months before he, he was leaving office. And it was very easy for our new mayor, Mayor Adams, to overturn that. And that's exactly what happened. So um, it, it was it was frustrating, I think, that even some of the more, what I consider one of some of the easier things to implement were not implemented. But then COVID hit and changed everything. Um, really, there were no more state test scores because the state tests were not, either not given or were made completely voluntary and most parents opted out. The whole issue of grading during COVID became very problematic. How, how would you grade students based upon the fact that a lot of them didn't have um, um, access to the internet on a, um, and um, on, a, on a secure basis. And so there were lotteries that were established for admissions um, in the meantime that created, um, put less emphasis on grades and more on, on random 
um, 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 where you came out with a, with a lottery number. And that made some schools um, more diverse and more integrated, but it didn't completely change. And then they are now, um, after um, long consideration, the chancellor is putting back some of the system, not all of the system. He, he left it up to superintendents to decide whether to um, have um, um, screens for their middle schools. And actually most districts decided, uh, superintendents decided to get rid of them. And then in high schools, he's going to base um, admissions more on where you rank in certain um, percentiles on grades, but no longer based on state tests. And so um, where do you think that um, you know, comes out in the whole history of New York City. Will that make a real difference? Um, again, uh, we have lower percentages of white students now. I think it's 16% that in the beginning of this whole saga, um, black, the percentage of black students is falling fast, but uh, Asians and Hispanics are increasing um, pretty fast. So that's changing the complexion of our student population. What lessons do you think um, we should learn from the past in terms of what should happen next? Um, so as far as lessons from the, the past, um, one of the, ma the main things that I feel is we need to try some things long enough to see if and how they they work. I mean, from you know, that was certainly the case with uh, community control, um, with you know the the unscreening of, of middle schools. I, I mean, we we will still have a bunch of them that um, will be unscreened, but we were just. We should be just um, starting to see what the the impact of that is, uh, especially as we're getting back to hopefully a more normal post-COVID world. Um, and you know, you've seen throughout history that it's really hard to evaluate these experiments when they are dropped so so quickly and you know you, you don't know what the lessons are um you know i i think uh one student voice is going to be be key um i mean students are the ones who experience um uh segregation and inequality directly and I think that is the sort of hope because if it's, you know, parents versus parents, um, those with more power and influence and who basically uh, uh, support the status quo are likely to, to win. Thank you for Christopher for being with us today and sharing with us the history of desegregation efforts in New York City. I'll put the link to your terrific new book, The Battle Nearer to Home, The Persistence of School Segregation in New York City, in the resources section of the podcast and of WBAI. And I highly recommend that anyone interested in this issue should buy a copy. So thank you again. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. This is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Listeners, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We need the support of people like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. You can also donate online at WBAI.org. There's no other show on the air that explores the issues and controversies affecting our public schools, like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate. If you missed part of this show or would like to recommend it to a friend, you can also listen to it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, thanks so much for listening. W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-A-I-W-B-
were the New Orleans Jazz Vipers at WBAI New York City. Holidays bring us all together. So let's stay up to date with COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. And mask up if it's crowded indoors. Happy, healthy holidays. This is the mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. The testing. Testing. Tune into Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. This place playwright on Tuesday, November 29th at 9 p.m. will be joined by the critically acclaimed Italian-born artist Lucio Pazzi to discuss the way of the artist and the art since he arrived in New York in 1962. Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. Radio Cafe. Hey, the cats drink coffee. They like yogurt and a teaspoon better. Oh, no kidding. So do I. <laughs> Hi, this is Christian McBride, and you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Funny, this radio hasn't been working very well the past two days. Peter, where do you live? I'm glad you asked me. It's a secret place. Please tell me. All right, I tell you. Boshan. When? Saturday afternoons at 6 here on WBAI. That should be time for our favorite program. Yes, just about time. I should have been back here a long time ago. What would you do if I went off the air? We kill ourselves! <laughs> Hi, this is Julian Gioiello, and I'm a listener and supporter of WBAI. I'm a student at NYU, and I live in New York City. And I want to shout out to the other young listeners of WBAI. We have to help keep the station going. And the easiest way to do it is through the WBAI buddy system. If you donate as little as $10 a month, you have proactively promoted free speech radio. Go to the website, WBAI.org, click the donate button, and make a difference. A special message from Ecologic. Ecologic has been moved to 6 a.m. Saturdays. They bring you environmental news, stories, music, chat, and the opportunity to call in, covering every environmental issue and always include solutions. Archived at echoradio.org and wbai.org slash archive. Join them there or live Ecologic at 6 a.m. Saturdays here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And coming up will be a special broadcast, and I want you to stay tuned. Next week, Latin Roots will return.
Isn't it better to go through life with a smile and a song Than walking around with a face 11 miles long Now you know that so you can't go wrong If you start off each day with a song You've got to start off each day with a song Or sing it, Jimmy Boy 